Where'd Mead go? So I, was, I ran into Mead this morning, and I said, how you doing? And he said, I'm doing great. This is a great day. And I said, really, why? And he goes, because today I'm celebrating my 20th anniversary. So Mead and Monique, happy anniversary. If I had a voice, it was, I would sing it to you, but I will spare you all. I had a hacking cough this weekend, and it just wiped me out. And I was, yesterday I felt great, and then today with those Santa Ana winds, just made my throat all dry. So I have all these lozenges here, so if I start popping, then you'll know why. So when Lance and I talked about three weeks ago, and we said, let's do this Thanksgiving thing, and let's talk about it. And we've always done it together, and I really enjoy those tag teams times with him because he, he really gets insightful, and it motivates me to think differently about things. And so um, he said, no, this time you're doing it by yourself. And I go, oh, man, because now I've got I to be more prepared, so to speak. And uh, so as, as I thought about this, and I talked to a few people that I know real well, and they said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, Thanksgiving. And they said, well, what are you going to talk about? And I said, well, let me ask you a question. Tell me what you know about Thanksgiving. And here was the preponderance of answers. Number one was, well, it was about the pilgrims. And um, they had a, a feast with the Indians. And they came over on the Mayflower. Anything else? Pop to your mind? Anybody? Lee, you told me to point to you. Not now. <laughs> and people ran out of things. They go, well, that's kind of what I know about things. It was the first Thanksgiving, they said. And so as I listened to those, I realized there is a whole, another story that we haven't heard. And it's relative today, and I'll, I'll get to that at some point here. But the thing, I want to think about three things as we go through this. Um, number one, I want you to Keep in the back of your mind, what is the value of circumstances? That's the first question. What is the value of circumstances? Circumstances. Second question, how much is enough? And then the last question would be, how far do your convictions take you? Three questions. Now, when you think of Thanksgiving and the pilgrims, as everybody mentioned, it's not a church holiday. It didn't come up through the ages. Um, there are many that say that the first Thanksgiving was celebrated in the 1200s. The Spanish did it in Florida in 1565. Um, Spanish did it again in other parts of the country in 1598, and the Canadians did it. So it wasn't brand new when the pilgrims landed. So why, why are we going through this? Well, to understand it, I need to take you back, and I need to do a little history and let you know that it's not, ah, it worked. It's not, this is not the story. This is the story we're taught. And today, if you go to Plymouth, Massachusetts, there will be a plaque there. And there's a plaque from an indig the indigenous peoples, and it's almost called a day of mourning, where they start talking about how Thanksgiving was really the, a lie and this was a time when the indigenous people lost their land, their property, and it was the beginning of the, the white man coming in and destroying America. Well, also, well, I'll get into a few other things there. And I want you to know that's not the story. 
I don't want to call it a myth because there are people that actually believe that. And we'll talk about the Indians here in a second. So let's go back a little bit. And let me show you something here. So this is pivotal to understand when we think about the pilgrims. So here's this guy right here in the center, Henry VIII. And he's going to become king. And he has a brother named Arthur. He's over there on the left. You can't see him very well. So he marries Catherine of Aragon, which is a part of Spain, the northern part of Spain. He marries her, and he dies. Henry VIII, being a good guy, offers to step in the place, and he marries Catherine. And he does, he's a dutiful husband, and for 20 years they have kids, but he doesn't get any male kids, and so he's concerned. Well, at the same time, she has a handmaiden, and you know the stories, and long and behold, he wants to divorce her. So he goes to the Pope, head of the Catholic Church, and says, I need to divorce my wife so I can marry Anne Boleyn. And the Pope says no. Because you see, his cousin is related to Catherine, and that's part of Spain, and it's English. Spain and England are warring, they're fighting each other, so there's wars going on. It's going to happen a lot in the next hundred years. And so he says no, so... He says, you can't divorce. And Henry says, fine, then I'll divorce you. And so he divorces the Catholic Church. And he basically tears down all the stuff, tears, takes, down, takes all their money, and uses it to build up his coffers. And then he starts the Church of England, of which he's the head. He goes, that works out well. So the very next day, he then, he marries over here. Whoops, that skipped way too far ahead. I don't know how it did that. He marries uh, Anne Boleyn, then he marries Jane Seymour. Now, Anne Boleyn, he executes her. Six wives, two of them he beheads. Jane Seymour comes along after she's gone. She actually has a male child, but he doesn't live very long, and we'll talk about him in just a second. So Henry VIII now gets rid of the Catholic Church, and he brings on the Protestant Church. And this is in the mid-1500s, and I'll show you a chart here in a second, you'll see all these dates. In the mid-1500s, in 1570, well, actually, in 1454, the Gutenberg Press is invented, 1450s. 60 years later, we get the Wittenberg nailing the, the 95 thesis on the, um, on the Wittenberg door there in Germany. That takes place in 1517, and then we have Henry VIII in the 1550s. All this is going on. Just to give you a worldwide picture, the Incas and the Aztecs are going on over on the other continent. There's wars everywhere. There's slaves going on all over the world everywhere. People are trying to take land. They're trying to take over people. At the same time, the church is going through the Protestant Reformation now. So John Luther, John Luther, Martin Luther, he puts his... Uh, his the uh, nails his thesis on the door, and uh, begins the Protestant Reformation. And that begins to take root. And a little bit beyond that, the first English Bible, John Wycliffe, he takes the Bible and translates it in English. And then that's in 1526. And then 10 years later, he's executed. Fast forward a couple of years, 1593, it's illegal to own an English Bible. It's illegal to call yourself a Puritan. Well, Henry VIII dies. He has a daughter under his first wife, Catherine. Her name is Mary. He has another daughter 
under Anne Boleyn, and her name is Elizabeth. And we know that in the future here, and here's his different wives, and you can see what they happen. So, I like the way they're next out here. And so here you see this house of Tudor. They reigned for nearly 100 years. And I'm getting ahead of my slides, and you'll find this out because I know I've got a different time limit now tonight. But in those 100 years, those four people executed 75,000 people going from the Protestant church, excuse me, the Catholic church, divorcing it, going to the Protestant church with King Henry VIII. Then when Mary, she becomes known as Bloody Mary, she goes in and persecutes all the Protestants now when everybody was Catholic before. And then when Elizabeth come in, she does the same thing all over again to the Catholics that were in power with her sister, her stepsister. That's what was going on at the time when the pilgrims, they're following the Protestant Reformation that started you know, back in 1517. So that's the background of what's going on when they get in here. So you see people standing up here and they were being burnt at the stake. They were being teenagers that were burnt at the stake. And it was not uncommon for the crowds to gather around and you'd say, why did everybody go along with that? Well, it's just kind of like today. People hear a narrative over and over again and they just kind of go along with it. Well, they're this party or they're that party and they're not that bad and they just went along with it because the king or the queen said so. They hadn't really got yet to the point of the divine right of kings where it said, there's God and then there's the king and they're almost identical and then there's everybody else. That was going to come with King James. That's who the pilgrims had to deal with. But up until this point, the king and the queen, they would basically announce to everybody, you will do this religious ceremony or you will be thrown in jail. That was just the way of the land. And that's what the pilgrims were fighting. And they would go all through all different kinds of persecutions to suffer that. So here's what the numbers look like. So you see the numbers over here. And I didn't say William Tyndale. I don't know. First Bible translated the English. Who did I say? Wycliffe. I don't know where that came from. Um, He's executed 10 years later. The Geneva Bible comes along, and this really started everything rolling because the Geneva Bible, it was printed in English. There was 100,000 notes they put in the margins. And in those notes, they would say, here's what the scripture says, here's what the king can and can't do, and here's what your rights are, and this is what's happening. Well, in those days, if you carried that Bible, and if you were to basically denounce or move away from what the king was, it devalued the king. Maybe the king isn't close to God, they would think. Well, if you devalued the king, it made him less powerful in the eyes of his subjects, his people. So if you read that Bible or you possessed that Bible, you were now guilty of treason. So if you had it in your possession, they would execute you. And that was the progression. The king said, if they're reading that, they're not going to like me. If they don't like me, I'm not going to stand for that. I'm just going to get rid of them. That's what the pilgrims were facing. That was the mindset. Now, obviously, it progressed. There was a, I won't want have time for that. Um, king Edwards VI, he's nine years old. And he takes on the kingdom. So he comes on in 1547. Notice right when his Henry VIII dies, he's the son, but he's only nine years old. The, always passes to the son before it ever goes anywhere else. His son's nine years old, takes it on. 
And when he takes it on, he starts following in Henry's steps. In fact, he goes a step further and says, you don't even have to go to mass anymore, and you don't have to do any of those liturgical things, and no more indulgences, and all of those things. That's gone. But he didn't live. He got sick, and he died. 1553, and that's when Bloody Mary comes in, and she reinstitutes everything again, and then she starts putting her stamp on things. So let me go. So here we go. So now they, they're in this church environment, and they realize things are not well. And the church was Catholic, then it was Protestant, it was Catholic. Elizabeth comes in, she doesn't want to get in too big a fight, but she's more Protestant. And then she dies. And then in 1603, King James comes to power. And he says, I have a divine right from God himself. And he believed he was a dynamic and powerful Christian man, very religious. But he believed his way was God's way. And so he said, you cannot. And again, he was the one that was very concerned about them reading that Geneva Bible. So he comes in and he starts hunting them down. And the pilgrims are just, how do, you, how do we deal with this? And so for a number of years, they go to this place called Scrooby Manor. And for four years, they live here. Now, this is what it looks like today. It's not what it looked like back then. I had one record that said they even had a moat around the actual place that they met. Um, there was a church there, and the head bishop of the, uh, the church was there, and it was on a main thoroughfare, and they were meeting underground. They were very risky. They had their kids looking out to make sure that if anyone from the government came out and see it, would see it, because they'd be arrested. They were listening to sermons outside the church of the state. And if you listened to sermons outside that, you were guilty of treason. So they couldn't be caught listening or having a sermon that wasn't approved by the state. And so they were doing that, and they were scared about it. And so after about four years or so, they said, this is just getting too bad. And the king basically said, if you don't like it, leave. And they said, okay, we'll leave. And so they, you can't leave without permission, but he wouldn't give them formal permission. So they try to sneak away. So they hire a, a, um, a Danish or a Dutch captain. And he, he says, I'll take you over to Holland or the Netherlands. And the Netherlands was a very liberal place to be. There was no persecution. It's where there were other um, people in the church, the Puritans, people that said, you know, the church is, is really going through a bad time right now, and we need, to, we need to change it, but we need to do it from within. And we called those people Puritans. They wanted to purify the church. They'd gone through all these changes. Let's purify the church. And well, that didn't work real well for some people because they didn't see it getting any better. In fact, the Catholic churches looked just like the Protestant churches. They were doing the same things. They said, the only way this is going to get better is if we leave. And they became known as the separatists. So they were all Puritans. The question was whether you stayed or whether you left. Well, they said, okay, we're going to leave. So they hire the captain. They're going to get ready to leave. So they go down. They have all their belongings with them. The women had a lot of the money and the things, and they wrapped it around. They did everything they could to get all their stuff out because they were going to go on a boat ride. They were going to go across the English Channel from one side to the other, about 150 miles, I guess, the route they were taking. And it was going to take a little bit of time. When they got down there, the ship, the captain realized he collected all their money. And then when they got ready to board the ship, he notified the authorities. The authorities came down. They arrested everybody. They took all their clothes. They took their money. They took their possessions. And they threw them into prison. My first question I asked you is, what about circumstances? 
They had believed with all their heart that God was calling them to leave the church and go to another land where they could worship freely and honor God for all that he was. They believed it in their hearts. But if you were to look at the circumstances, you'd have to say, I don't know. I mean, have you ever, have you ever prayed for something and then when it happened right, the circumstances were good, we said, oh, thank the Lord, this is what God wanted. When it went bad, it was like, man, I wonder if I was doing the right thing. Maybe I missed it somewhere. So they had those circumstances. This is the first set. They go down there, they're thrown in prison, and they're delayed. Now they don't have the money they had. They go find another Dutch captain. They do a little differently this time. And they have the men come on ahead, and the men are ahead, and they're waiting out in the, out in the harbor, so to speak, and they're on the boat already, and the wives and the family are left, behind, are left on the shoreline. They're ready to go, and the authorities come on them again. And the men are watching from the ship. They're seeing their wives and their kids being arrested and hauled away. So they're on the ship. Well, they have to get out of there because they can't be confiscated, so they take off. And they're in that North Sea, which is just north of, I guess I do have that on the slide. So they're trying to get over from over in this side all the way over here. This is Amsterdam, and here's this little city Leiden down here. So they're trying to head here. So they're going to come right from here over to here. Well, when they take off, it's really stormy weather, and they get tossed all, all around in here. So instead of taking a couple of hours or something to get across, they were there for two weeks. And the storms were violent. In fact, there was 100 ships that were going back and forth here, and 100 of them sank and were lost. One survived, the pilgrim ship, with the husbands on it. And by 1608, they were together. Once again, the families reunited. And so you start thinking again, wow, how much is enough? How many circumstances do I have to face? God may be saying, you're on the wrong track, Randy. I gave you one captain, you got delayed and imprisoned. I gave you another captain, you got your family taken from you. Then you went through two weeks of this nearly shipwreck, 100 ships get lost. Well, you say, well, we survived, but that's another circumstance. Do I weigh the circumstance? How do you test your heart in a situation like that? So now they're over here in Holland, and they said, wow, this is going to be great. This is religious freedom here. But they spoke Dutch, and we didn't know how to speak that language. And they weren't farmers the way we were. They were textile people. So they had to learn these trades, and it didn't pay very much. And they weren't very well respected because they couldn't speak the language, and they dressed funny, and they looked different. And actually, originally, they landed up in Amsterdam, and there were some other Puritans that were there, but they had a disagreement about baptism, so they went down about 25 miles. Whoops. Not what I wanted to do. They went down from Amsterdam right up here and went down here to Leiden, right here. And so when they got to there, they said, okay, now we're going to start. And so from 1708, excuse me, 1608 to 1620, about 12 years, they were there. There was a young boy, he was born in 1590, and his name was William Bradford. And he became the governor of the Pilgrims in Plymouth when they finally landed there for over 30 years. He was elected year after year over 30 different times. And he was a young boy of 17 when they first landed here 
in Amsterdam. And he was just a young teenager. And the pastor there, John Robinson, began pouring into him. William Brewster, their elder, began pouring into him the scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, and began talking about what God did with the children of Israel and how he has set them apart and how he called upon them to set themselves apart unto God. And it began to birth in him. And for those 12 years, they were there. And so now, they, now they're 12 years there, and all of a sudden there was, remember Spain and the marriage I told you about there? Mary married the queen of, or king of Spain, and she became the queen consort of Spain, and Spain had a control of the Netherlands, but they had a 12-year peace. Well, that peace was coming up, and there was going to be war again, and they were going to ask everybody to join in the war against the Spanish. Well, the pilgrims couldn't do that, so they got to start to think about leaving again. And you start saying, oh, these things are, this is just mounting up. How much is enough? How many things do I have to go through to follow what God wants me to do? Well, they had something in their heart. They had learned from their very young age that you've got to keep the scriptures. It's almost like when you go back to Joshua, when Joshua's meeting with God, he says, Moses, my servant, is dead, and thus I will be with you, just as I was with Moses. And you say, well, what else could you need if you've got the God of the universe, the God of Moses, he's with you. And it's as though God knew, Joshua, there's going to be difficult times. And in those difficult times, you're going to need endurance. You're going to have to persevere. And the way you do that is don't let my word depart from your heart. Bind it around your neck. You say, well, why do I need his word if I have him? Because when the circumstances get really tough, you sometimes forget him. So get that word inside because it will reinvigorate you, remind you, it will allow you to persevere with your relationship with him. The pilgrims understood that. The pilgrims believed that. I had a roommate in college, and this last fall he was speaking, and he shared that he had just finished reading the scriptures his 58th time. And he got saved roughly the same time I did. And I'm going, I haven't been at 58 times. I go, how is that even possible? So I did a little calculation. There's 783,000 words in the Bible, depending on the translation, but thereabouts. And you and I, when I'm speaking right now, I'm probably a little bit faster, but the average person speaks at about 238 words a minute or reads at that speed when you're reading silently to yourself. So if you did that, it would take you 3,289 minutes to read through the Bible. What does that mean? Well, if I read 20 minutes a day, just 20, I can read through the Bible in 165 days which means I can read through the Bible twice a year and I'll still have over 30 days left over. And suddenly it dawned on me, Jerry didn't read just 20 minutes a day, he read an hour a day. So he could read through the Bible six times a year when he was diligent. And I was going, wow. And you have to think about those pilgrims that had nothing to do. They worked all day and they came back at home when the sun went down and they were in their house and mom and dad read the scriptures. They had the scriptures in their heart, and they went through those scriptures, time in and time out, again and again and again. So you and I today, we don't have an excuse not to read through the scriptures. At 20 minutes a day, we'll read through it twice a year. There was a guy, this is William Brewster. He was hunted down by King James. They were after him. So when he was in Leiden, 
He, was, he knew he was being hunted down. See, he had a printing press, and he printed 15 different books that spoke against the King of England. He put those books in the bottom of a wine casket, and then they'd ship them off to England, and they were distributed. Well, the king was furious, and they said, you've got to find where that guy is. Well, they checked the type, and they went to every printing press that was known and compared the, pride, compared the type, and they found out it was his. Well, he went in hiding. His partner was arrested, and they broke the printing press down. It was kind of the internet of the day. I mean, he was the guy that gave all the news out and around. You'd say, why would you do that? It was very obvious that the king didn't like what you were doing. You had already left the persecution. You'd been imprisoned twice, your families, and now you're over in another country, and you're sending back a message to the king and saying, yada, 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 here I am, come get me. Why would you do that? When the circumstances were mounting and making it very difficult to understand what was going on, and then on top of that you said, and you realized there was something burning on the inside that wasn't normal burning. It was something that was deep within their souls. So they finally decide they're going to leave here. And I won't tell you about him. So they get these ships. They're in Leiden, and there's two ships. One's going to be called the Speedwell, except it didn't have much speed and it didn't work very well. It was supposed to take them from Leiden back around to, to south of London there, and they were going to meet the Mayflower there. When they were up in Leiden, they put the wives and the kids on a, on a basically rafts. So it was a seven-hour raft ride down to Delfshaven, and then the men got on the ship and they went down, and they met down together, and they were going to get on. Now, there was 300 people in their congregation at this time, 300, which is pretty big back in the 1600s, if you can imagine, 300 people. How many people came over on the Mayflower? Anybody have a guess? 102 plus 30 crew or so. Here's the kicker question. How many of those people were pilgrims? Well, weren't they all pilgrims? No. Pilgrims arranged for it, but they also had to have artisans and other people. Miles Standish, you ever heard of him? Captain Miles Standish? He wasn't a pilgrim. He was what they called a stranger. Any non-pilgrim was called a stranger. So strangers and pilgrims came over. It wasn't a derogatory term. It just meant you're a non-pilgrim. So they had strangers and pilgrims on there together. Only 41, 41 left Leiden to head on over to London eventually make their way across. Only 41. So now when you think in the world today, 35 million people, 35 million people can trace their descendants to those 41 people. Over 10 million in America. And then I'm jumping ahead, but I'll tell you, and after the first three months, half of those 41 died. So they get down to Leiden, and this is the ship that they're going to be on. You can see there's three decks here. And catch up with me here. It's not catching up. Okay, we'll use this one. So we have an upper deck, lower cargo deck. That lower deck there, so I tried to figure out, give you guys some sense of what this was. So if we take out where I'm standing right now, and we go to those back doors there, that's the length of this ship. And if you go right here from the, this aisle, right here, to those posts, 
from me to that aisle, that's it. We had 140 people. Two, four, six, eight, 10, 12, 40, probably three times what we have right in here. And we're all crammed in there for 66 days when we finally head across on that one ship. You say, well, I thought there was two ships. Well, there was. But when they get down to London and they got together, the speedwell, they took off and it sprung a leak. So they had to go back. And then when they went back, it sprung a leak again. But this time they were 300 miles away. And they had to come all the way back down. Now they have a problem because they have 140 people and they can only hold 102. So another group of people said, we're not going to come, we'll come later. There were two pregnant women that made that trip. They were already pregnant, at least five months pregnant already, and they made that trip. There were husbands that left their kids behind because they needed able-bodied men, so they left their families behind, not knowing if they would ever see them again. And you'd say, what possibly would drive you? And you have to think, we went through COVID and churches were shut down. And you just look at the attitude and, and different things that happened in the church at large, how so many were so willing to say, well, we'll just do church this way. And they still haven't come back. And you look at what happened when the pilgrims were confronted with an idea, you can't do church your way, they said, well, then we will do this. And it was a nonstop, nonstop, relentless pursuit of what God had birthed in them. The width of that boat was 25 feet. So if it's from Chris over to the panel here, that's the widest point in the center. The boat was kind of got narrower at the edges, so it wasn't 25 feet across. Okay, five and a half feet tall, so I'm 6'4". So I'm gonna, if I'm on it, I'm like this the whole time. 66 days, there was four masts. During that trip across, they had to take the mast down because the wind was so violent, they just had to flow wherever it went. So they were bouncing along the walls. You ask again, how much is enough? When do you say, I've had it. I, Lord, I, I must be missing it. This is way too complicated to accomplish this. Here's the breakdown there. 51 men, 21 boys, 20 women, and 10 girls. There was one birth on the tra travail across, and they named her Oceanus. And there was a death of one. So 101 came over. They didn't have a crew that really liked them. In fact, one of the crew members, as soon as they got on board, just mocked them. He said, I can't wait for you guys to die because I'm going to wrap you up in your shrouds and I'm going to be glad to throw you over. A couple days later, it was that same seaman that suddenly got sick, lost his life, and they were glad to wrap him in shroud and throw him over. The rest of the crew said, whoa. They didn't mess with the pilgrims the rest of the way across. When they all got there, this is kind of a depiction of what it looks like. Of, you see families, you see single people, um, you see servants many times. This is what it looked like when they started, and I'll show you what happened after the, the first year there. So now they finally, they're heading across. Now, and I'm not trying to, I am trying to dramatize this a little bit. You got in that ship, and I told you the first time before when the speedwell broke down, they went 300 miles. 
That was their first time really trying to get their sea legs. They didn't have Dramamine, so how well do you think that went? Not very well. So what, again, not to be graphic, a lot of people lost their lunch. But the ship, it was violent, so there was nowhere to go with the lunch. You didn't have lots of water that you could wash it down with, so it just stayed with you. When you got really, really sick and you tried to later on nurture some soup, you were losing your lunch any way that it could be lost. And all of that was down with you in this area that you and I are seeing right now, but we're all on one floor together. There is no privacy between us. All our personal belongings are right there. There is no restroom. There's no ladies' room. I had to wonder the first time, and I said, what man would bring his pregnant wife on that? They were committed to something that was deep and burning within them. And I would say, how much was that? When's enough enough? Then they get on their, they finally get off the speedwell, they all load up in the Mayflower, and they're heading across. And as they head across, um, again, the masks come down, and they're just bouncing around. It's supposed to take three weeks. It takes them 66 days, more than twice as long. They were supposed to be there. They left in July. They were supposed to be there in August and summertime. They didn't land until November 11th. It was cold. It was the winter. The North Atlantic then suddenly becomes a, just a bed of storms. It was the worst time in the world to travel. It was cold. It was icy. And that's what you were traveling with. And you were sick and you were throwing up. There was no restrooms. You couldn't go empty any buckets if you could find one. You didn't have enough water to wash things down. You stunk. Everything stunk. And then finally, on November 11th, let me jump ahead here. By the way, that's a depiction of what, the, if you go to Plymouth today, there's that picture there. It's the Mayflower, there it is. They call it the Mayflower 2. But that's as big as the ship was. That's it. 102 people plus 30 crew members. That was it. And the crew members didn't have restrooms either. So they were all doing the same thing above you. And when the water came down, it would seep through and water was coming over the edges. And there was a young man named John Howland, and somehow he decided he had to get up to get some fresh air. And when he was upstairs, the boat heaved, and he went overboard. In the middle of the North Atlantic, and it's icy cold, and somehow once he was flailing around, his hand caught hold of a line from the ship that was dangling in the water, and he managed to hold on somehow and either scream or yell or pull himself back when his life was actually saved. And he's actually one of the, uh, or his descendants are FDR in the bushes, ironically enough. This is what William Bradford said. They knew they were pilgrims and looked not much on those things, but lifted up their eyes to heaven, their dearest country, and quieted their spirits. The pilgrims realized the circumstances of life didn't matter. They were Calvinists. They believed God had ultimate control of everything. And they had a sure and confident future. And they acted on it. Their faith allowed them to act on their confident future. 
It's, it's kind of like this, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through, we sing it as a song. They sang it. The seeds of the greatest and most prosperous nation of the earth were being transported in the belly of that ship. These were seeds of faithful men and women. And I think I've already shared this with you already, so I'm not going to do that to you again. So they're, they're supposed to head over here, and they're supposed to go into Virginia. But when they came across, they, they, they didn't come that way. They got pushed out of, out of whack a little bit. So when they came down, they're supposed to head to what's now like New York, the northern end of Virginia. Virginia went all the way up to New York and all the way out to the Mississippi River. It was a huge area. And their charter said, here's where you're supposed to land. Well, if you see right here, that little hook, that's Cape Cod. And right at the very end of it here is a little place called Provincetown. And that's where they landed, finally. So they come down here. And it's actually, they come like this. And then as they head south, they couldn't get around this. It was just too, tempest, it was just too rough. And so they had to come back around and come back and land there. That's where they stayed and landed November 11th. November 11th. And they started this whole thing back in August. So I mean, it, it, it was a long time. Excuse me, September. So it took them a significant amount of time to get there, the 66 days. And now they've landed. What do they do now? Well, now it's rainy. It's cold. It's windy. They don't have any place to go. There's no Motel 6. There's, you know, we'll leave the light on for you. It didn't happen. There was nobody there for them. They spent 2,750 miles, which meant they averaged two miles a day. You and I could walk faster than they were traveling. And you'd say, how much is enough? Do you think God really wants us there if we're only able to take a boat two miles in a day? You have to wonder what's going on. Two miles an hour, excuse me. So they're up there in Cape Cod, the ship drops an anchor, and they, on the ship they had a place where they had a boat. And in that boat, they were able to go out and around the area and see what was going on. And as they did that, they went to a couple places, and I'm speeding along because I've only got seven minutes. <laughs> so they go to a couple places, and they finally, on December 25th, they decide, you know what, we're gone. We're gonna go down what's now Plymouth. And so they land down there in Plymouth, Plymouth, Massachusetts, and when they're there, they realize, and they've had skirmishes in Provincetown that their Indians were shooting at them, but they, none of them were killed, and they realized the Indians had already experienced the white man before. They knew what it was. John Smith from Virginia Day, he was here, and he charted the whole land, so they knew what was around here, so they, they knew they had to be careful about who the Indians were. I mean, there was wars going on with the, amongst these tribes. So they come in there, and they're looking around. They've got to figure out what to do. In that first three months, it was so cold that half of them died. At one point in time, there was only six people that were able to care for the other hundred, roughly hundred. So they didn't have much help. And they had, when they had to go bury someone, because they had to get, the, a lot of it was disease too, and sickness, not just normal exposure, but they had sicknesses, and they don't know what the disease was. Well, they had to bury them. Well, it's icy ground, trying to dig through that. But they couldn't let the Indians know how many people died, because then they'd realize, we can take these people. So they had to do it at night, and they didn't have lights or candles, and they I'm sure the Indians probably knew what was going on, but they didn't know that. So it was a very perilous time. Even if you were alive, you had to wonder, Lord, how much, you know, the circumstances now are really telling me this was a bad idea. You gotta wonder, how strong is your conviction to go forward when the circumstances say no, but your heart says yes? How long do you go? So they get in there, and then one day they're 
sitting down there, and this Indian walks up, and he walks right into the middle of camp. And the, the anecdote is, as he walked up and said in proper King's English, excuse me, mates, you know, you know something, do you have a beer? And, they, and the point of it was, is he talked perfect King's English, and they were, how can this be? He's an Indian. Well, and he says, he, he you know, I'm, I'm here, and something like that, and there's this tribe here called, um, it's part of Patuxa tribe, the Wampanoag, Wampanaga, Wampanaga, uh, Wampanoag, something like that. I always pronounce it wrong. And uh, he goes, they're here, and the chief is here. But the chief has a second, a, a second guy, uh, his interpreter. He's here, too. And he came from, he speaks English, too. And you go, really? Yeah, and I, could, I don't have time to tie it all in, but this is Squanto, and he ties into Virginia and what God was doing there 11 years earlier and how God brought it to bear so the pilgrims had an interpreter with the chief. It, That is weird. I couldn't have planned that. Um, so he's talking, uh, the chief's there, and they're talking back and forth. And the chief's concerned because his tribes got wiped out by a lot of other tribes because they're warring back and forth. And he goes, I need some help, and these guys could help us. So maybe if we kind of form this alliance, so they do that. So it's a mutually beneficial thing. And that particular treaty lasted over 50 years. And so when people say the pilgrims come over and they took the Indians' land, no, 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 no. That's not true at all. The Indians paid for everything that they, when they came upon this land, there was corn in the ground, there was some things that were left out, some feed, because the disease just came in and wiped them out. And they came in and they used that corn, but then they paid for that corn. And then they paid for any land that they used. And the Indians didn't want the land because it, with the disease and the plague, they thought it was cursed. So now they have peace with this Indian tribe. And Squanto comes along and shows them that winter after Three months where half had died. He showed them how to plant corn and beans and a few other things. And at the end of the fall, they have a pretty nice harvest. And they invited the Indians to come on and share in their bounty. Well, they didn't know that the Indians were going to bring 90 braves with them. Now, they had only 40-some 40, 40 people left. A lot of kids still. Not many women, because most of the women laid down their lives to keep their kids alive. So it was men, a few women, and a lot of kids. And so they came in, and they laid out their terrible, and they stayed for three days, and they said, we're not going to have enough food for this, but the, the Indians brought five deer, and they brought some eel, and they brought some berry, and a lot of other food, and they had relay races and all kinds of things that they dared, and they shared together. And then they went to Christmas. You know, in Psalm 92.1, it says, it is good, it's good to give thanks. It is good to give thanks. And the pilgrims, if you look at circumstances, they had nothing to be thankful for other than survival. There wasn't a circumstance that they could be glad about. William Bradford, the one I told you, was elected 30 times. When he was out scouting around the, sh the shorelines there, his wife stepped off the boat. And when she stepped off the boat, she fell into the waters, got her legs caught in her petticoats, and she drowned. He came back and found out that his wife had died. There wasn't a whole lot for them to be thankful for. Half their numbers had died. Their governor had died. And yet they gave thanks. And you say, wow, how far does your conviction drive you? It drove, this world's not my home, I'm just passing through. 
they realize that that which is birthed on the inside can now begin to work on the outside. That chief Massasoit, he was dying, and the pilgrims went to him. Ed Winslow went, went to him and began to minister to him. He's taking on the chief, and they're entrusting him because the witch doctors couldn't heal him and do anything. And he said, bring him to me. He goes and works with them. Now you realize, if that chief dies, it's over. But he nursed him back to health. And of course, the chief now realized, what manner of God is this? 1623, they prayed for rain, and the rain came for the harvest. But it wasn't a gushing rain the way they were used to in those days. It was a gentle, misty rain. So none of the fields washed away. And they said, your God provides not but rain, but the right kind of rain. So what drove the pilgrims to do what they did? Because they had an understanding that God had called them and that no matter what the circumstances were, it made no difference. John the Baptist, among men, the greatest. And at the end, he was beheaded. Circumstances don't matter. And if we learn anything from the pilgrims in Thanksgiving, it's the understanding that our God, we can be grateful because of who he is and what he births in us, not because of the circumstances of life and what they try to do to us. If you ever get in that situation in time in life where it looks like it's tough, you can kind of go back and remember the pilgrims. I'm sorry I didn't have time to go through a lot of this because we don't... That, by the way, is the Plymouth Rock. That's how big it is. And you say, well, how big is that? This is Plymouth Harbor today, but let me show you what that Plymouth looks like. That's, they put that all around Plymouth Rock. So it's almost as big as this stage here, and the rock is something I can wrap my arms around. <laughs> Obviously, the number 1620 wasn't there. Do they know that's where Plymouth Rock was? No. And then finally, you look at all the gray shadows here. You can kind of see that. The gray ones are all the people that died, and only the black ones there were the people that survived that first Christmas. So Thanksgiving isn't a, a holiday we celebrate because of turkeys and all the blessings that the pilgrims went through that first year. It was circumstance after circumstance that said, I don't know why we're doing this. We thought we were serving God, and it looks like everything he's throwing up against us tells us not to. But they persevered. The scripture was deep in their heart, and they persevered with that message, and they moved. And hundreds of years later, 150 years later, they took that idea of an inward liberty and Thomas Jefferson said, by the way, this isn't just something we accept. This is something God gives as an inalienable right. You have life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And then here we are today, wondering, have we learned the lessons of the pilgrims as a nation? And I guess you and I will get to see what that is. So with that, I have no idea how we're going to do this. Um, oh. Okay, here's what we're going to do. Um, let me pray real quick, and then I'll send you out here. Father, is, it's, it's tough when you're rushing. We rush through things like this, and you have one person standing here and sharing all these things that, um, that this would touch each of us differently, Lord. This message is, is something you've done in history. It's something we can look back at and remember, and I pray that uh, you would just take this, and as Jesus multiplied fish and bread, that you would multiply 
the concepts, the, the people, the message of your word, and that you would touch each of us so we'd each understand something that we met with you tonight and appreciate all that you've done. So, Lord, we're grateful, we're thankful that you've given us a sure and a confident future. And we bless you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. So now we all rise and we head out those doors to the, your right.